I'm Cody Commerce, and this is the Meaning Lab Podcast. I collect concise definitions of the good life. There's something I really like about the idea of having a one-sentence mission statement. It's a kind of mantra to check in with from time to time, to make sure you're making decisions based on what really matters, and not the more immediate, but also more fleeting worries of the day. My personal favorite, which I recently referenced in a post on meaning and context, comes from the philosopher Bertrand Russell. The good life is one inspired by love and guided by knowledge. One of the things that I think makes for a useful good life definition is that it puts the focus beyond oneself. One of my first Meaning Lab posts was about an idea which I called the off-policy theory of happiness, with the claim being that the most efficient way to become unhappy is to spend a lot of time really concerned with your own happiness. You need to aim at something else, something bigger. Your personal well-being, in terms of general satisfaction at least, maybe joy rather than happiness, will come as a byproduct. And I think that element is present, perhaps in a subtle way, in the two-word definition of the good life given by my guest today. It is find awe. Dacker Keltner is a professor of psychology at the University of California, Berkeley. His research has spanned questions about which emotions we have, why we have them, and what we do with them. His latest book is Awe, The New Science of Everyday Wonder and How It Can Transform Your Life. And in the introduction to it, he proposes that awe might be at the center of a life well-lived. At first, I thought this might be taking things a bit too far. I mean, awe, I could certainly see it as being an interesting target of psychological study, but as epicentral to the good life, really? As I got further into Dacker's argument, I realized there's a lot more subtlety and a lot more complexity here than I initially gave it credit for. As Dacker argues in the book and in this conversation, awe is so important because it is the emotional component of meaning. It is what we feel when we engage in meaningful behavior. That's not to say it's the only thing we feel or that there's a one-to-one mapping, but they're intrinsically related. Specifically, awe is a recognition of one's own smallness in the context of something much larger and more profound. As I argue in the Meaning and Context post referenced above, meaning can only be found by considering something, an activity, an experience, a pursuit, an object, a book, a word, in the appropriate context. It is a figure against a ground, and without proper recognition of that ground, the meaning evaporates. The feeling of awe is an emotional signal that we've made that connection. I found a lot to consider in this conversation because I tend to think about meaning not in terms of emotion, but in terms of, well, thoughts. I think for anyone who is interested in meaning, there should also be an interest in Dacker's argument about awe. Dacker's new book is Awe, The New Science of Everyday Wonder and How It Can Transform Your Life. It is out now. If you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing to my Substack newsletter. That is the main feed for my content, where I publish both my weekly podcasts and a weekly essay. Subscribing to that is the single biggest way you can support this show. You can find the feed at themeaninglab.com. That is themeaninglab.com. And thanks to everyone who has been giving the show positive ratings. At the time of this writing and recording, I'm at 12 five-star ratings on Spotify, 
I know it's not a lot, but at least it's 11 people who aren't my mom. If you are listening on Spotify and haven't submitted your assessment of the show, please consider giving the Meaning Lab podcast a five-star rating. It takes four seconds, literally less time than it'll take me to explain how easy it is. If you are on the Meaning Lab homepage where it says, uh, here's the logo, follow, following, whatever it may say there, click the three dots. Then it'll say rate show, select the fifth star and press submit. That's it. And it really does help a lot in growing the show's audience on the platform. You can also click the follow button to subscribe if you haven't already. Thank you for listening. And without any further ado, here is my conversation with Dacker Keller. See, you worked on the movie Inside Out from Pixar. And... uh, I'm curious, you talk about this a little in the book, when you say how that came about and, and what surprised you about that process. Yeah, it was really one of the privileges of my career. Um, I had known Pete Docter, who was the director of Inside Out, uh, and he had just directed Up, which won an Academy Award, and he called me up, and I'd known him from a conference and a little bit socially. And he said, hey, you know, Dacker, this is Pete Docter. I'm like, yeah, you know. Uh, I'm thinking about making a movie about emotion. And I was like, great idea, you know. And he's like, well, you teach mo- emotion at Berkeley, and maybe you'll come on over. And uh, I, I literally, you know, I had very profound misconceptions about what I was going to do there. Um, you know, the first was um, I actually literally thought for an instant, I'm embarrassed to say, like, maybe he wants to use my voice in this movie, which is absurd, you know. Um, and then uh, I thought, they would really want um, direct advice on how to construct the film. But what Pete does with his teams is they just talk to a lot of scholars and practitioners about the phenomenon that they're portraying in the film. And so I would go and, you know, give these little mini classes on emotion and memory or emotion and expression or emotion and identity and the genetics of emotion and, you know, and, and neurophysiology uh, so my role was really truly as a scientific consultant, you know, and then they took the science and, and created the film. And what surprised me is, um, what surprised me is how, how dynamic the creation of those films is, how, uh, and then what really surprised me is this, and I'd never really thought about it, even though I was raised by an artist and both my parents are really artists is that this, this interesting interaction between art and science. You know, I told Pete, like, I think there are 20 emotions. And Pete's like, we can't have 20 characters in a film. Come on, you know, that's ridiculous. So, so it was interesting to see how art takes science and, and uh, does its magic with it. So I can definitely see that directionality of influence where you're the expert on the subject and then they're figuring out how to render that in a way that's going to be narratively compelling. But I'm curious, is there any sort of way in which the other direction took place where seeing that kind of rendering of your own ideas or a version of them played out, you know, kind of gave you some further and more concrete insight into into some of the topics that that, that, that movie covered? Oh, my God. You know, it was profound um, to a profound experience, Cody, to talk about our science and a study and then see it in a film, 
uh, embodied and enacted for hundreds of millions of people. One um, might even call it awe-inspiring. It was awe-inspiring. So I have done a lot of research on how sadness colors how we perceive the world. It was my first publication with Phoebe Ellsworth. And that's a core theme of the film. Like the, you know, Riley becomes sad and things seem blue and slower and so forth. That was profound. Uh, the, you know, the Linda Levine's work on memory that our current emotions bias the memory of the past. They just took that and just, it became this central thing. I did this research on touch and vo vocalizations of emotion, little coos and sighs and laughs. And I talked to them about that. And that at this key scene in the film, when Riley returns from running away and she embraces her parents and they embrace and she, she makes this little sound like, oh, you know, and she's returning to home. And literally when I saw the screening of that, Cody, I, like tears are just flowing down my cheeks, you know, that like we've studied those vocalizations. And then the big thing was, and this is where science really helped, which was, you know, they didn't want the central character to be sadness. The executives didn't because um, sadness feels like depression, but it's not depression. And so I, you know, Pete called me and I went in and we spent a bunch of hours together to really make the case like, you got this film has to be about loss, you know, because loss is human and loss is the, the fount of growth and it's beautiful sometimes and it makes things sacred. And, and so Pete really was like, Dacker, I need your help, man. The executives want the central character to be fear, Bill Hader, which is funny, you know, but I want it to be sadness. So, so it, was, it was really humbling to uh, see science have a role in that film. Really humbling. There is a, a kind of minor theory that I that I have myself, which is that there's a lot of how we think about comedy is that we want to go for it directly, right? We want to say, well, I'm going to start off with a funny premise. There's going to be some absurd thing and like all that sort of stuff. But actually, when you look at the way a lot of great comedy works, you start off with a very serious premise or what you're talking about, something that's fundamentally sad or devastating or tragic. And it totally changes our expectations about what that narrative is going to be like. So if you start off by saying, hey, I'm going to tell you a joke, prepare to laugh, it's going to be insanely funny. It, there's a really high bar that you're setting for yourself. And so one of the, one of the things I love about that movie, Inside Out, and, and other things like it, is that you can be so much funnier by starting off with a sort of tragic or difficult premise and sort of changing the expectations about how, how the sort of comedic punches are going to land. You know, I will pass that on to Pete Doctor, the director, because, you know, the thing about his movies, I remember asking my Berkeley class, they asked me about, you know, hey, man, you were part of Inside Out. It's a big phenomenon right now. And I was like, well, what do you guys think about the film? And, and I had this student who was a, a veteran, formerly homeless, really remarkable human being now in law school. And he raises his hand. He's like, that was the darkest movie I've ever seen, you know, because she runs away from home and the parents are fighting and so forth. Um, and Pete does, you know, with Up, Inside Out, and then Soul, the basic premise of the films is like losing a loved one, growing away from your family, and death. And, and the comedy becomes really rich. And the, so I agree. I think that's a really interesting insight into those that director and, and his work. 
this is not at all what I was I was planning to talk about, but it, uh, <laughs> this actually reminds me of another thing, which I think, and I think I do think there is going to be a connection here with 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 your work that we're going to talk about in a second. But um, you know the book The Road by Cormac McCarthy. I do. That's uh, uh, it gives me goosebumps thinking about incredible it. book and. A lot of people will be familiar with it, but it's his father and son, post-apocalyptic, you know, basically the darkest human imagery you could imagine. And I think a lot of people look at that superficial imagery and think, well, the book is about darkness. But no, I think, in fact, it's actually fundamentally about hope. Because, and love. Yeah. Fundamentally, yeah, love. Because like that, that's family. the thing, is that... Um, the worst possible things that a human imagination could come up with are happening to this father and son. And what happens at the end of every scene? They say, well, you know, there's still hope. There's still room for us to love one another and be together. There's still optimism on the, on the, on the horizon. And so I'm, I really do think there's something to be said for these contrasts between setting the background in one capacity and darkness and then being able to bring love and, and hope to the forefront and sadness, uh, and that. And I think there's maybe a connection to be drawn there with awe. Yeah, totally. And, uh, so let's, let's maybe, let's maybe start to, to get into that a little bit. Well, you know, a lot of the emotions and it's such an astute observation, Cody, you know, that out of, uh, dark themes of life or, you know, tragic themes of life comes beauty and imagination and two of the emotions that I've studied are very uh, intertwined with that idea. You know, I did a lot of work on compassion. And compassion is fundamentally where you see somebody suffering, right? And they are in pain or crying and they are suffering. And what comes out of it in the observer is care, is, is vagal tone and, you know, approach and wanting to, to bring goodness to people. And then awe is about destabilizing mystery, Right. It's like, God, I don't, what was that? You know, this, I felt like the person who had just passed away was standing next to me. Ah. Um, and, and you get awe and awe again has this quality of, like you're saying of like humans face hard things, suffering, death, disease, you know, et cetera. And we, we have these mechanisms, these deep mechanisms you probably are interested in to make sense of them, to find meaning in them. And it's remarkable. So it's a great connection. One of the things that I guess you could say that I, I collect is concise definitions of the good life. And you start off with one in your book. So can you say what it is and, and what the rationale behind it is? The good life. <laughs> yeah, well, for me, what awe points us to is kind of this recent scientific literature on meaning um, and it really, uh, and awe reveals this dimension of the good life. Good life can be pleasure, it can be calmness, but awe and meaning are about connecting your identity to large things in the world that have our systems, right? A system of beliefs, uh, a religious system, an ecosystem, a collective culture. And, and awe has this common property of like, wow, I'm part of this group, I'm part of this musical movement, I'm part of this social protest organization, I'm part of, I'm part of the mountains, right? And awe has that. So that's what I would say is the good life, is finding how you, as this unique, idiosyncratic individual, connect to large 
things out there. Or what Jane Goodall said, you know, being amazed at things outside of yourself, which I, I really think is urgently needed today. So I think what I find fascinating about that, and the reason why I lingered on some of the stuff at the beginning, is that it goes with this theme of if you want X, the best way to get it is to pursue Y. And I think that works with meaning and awe, at least in your arguments, um, and in so much of life. You know, I think, for example, happiness as well. P- pursuing subjective well-being directly is one of the most efficient ways to diminish your own subjective well-being. Yeah. And so can you maybe draw out that connection a little bit more, and particularly from the perspective of, um, you know, if you have a, a good theory of awe, if you have a robust understanding of how that works, how, cl- how close does that get you to a theory of meaning? I think it gets you really close. And, you know, you could address that scientifically. Um, nobody has, but I think that will, that's on the horizon. Um, yeah, I completely agree to you, with you, which is, you know, if I tell somebody, like a, a parent approaches me and, and their teenager is really depressed, you know, which is too widespread today, they say, oh, okay, awe is good for you. There are a lot of benefits to feeling awe from your immune system to your thinking. You know, you, you don't tell the teenager to go find awe. You do two things that our, our uh, science has documented and I write about in awe. And one is you say, hey, there are these pathways to awe that we call the eight wonders, Right. You know, the moral beauty of people, collective movement, nature, art, music, spirituality, big ideas, life and death. Pick one of those and, and go after it. And, th- and then you'll start to find it, right? And the second thing is, is kind of the mindset that um, you want to, and you know, this we've studied in, in different contexts, like you want to kind of let people not go after it intentionally, like you suggested, Cody, but like wander a bit wonder about things, allow for mystery, so short shrifted today. And I think if you can give people that roadmap, which is like, there are these domains where you can find it, pick yours. You may, you may be a um, space person. So, you know, so like a lot of people are like, figure out how to take in the sky. You may be a gardening person, you may be a poetry person, or a punk rock person. And, and all will get you those choices and insights will get you to awe and then meaning you know it's striking to me when people feel awe music in particular like god i'm crying at this this woman's voice i don't know why well why is she is representing something that really means a lot to you uh and it's great to observe that there's a little bit of a turtles all the way down effect here where like (laughs) if what you really want is happiness well then what you should pursue is meaning and well, if what you really want is meaning, then what you should pursue is awe. And well, okay, but so if you really want awe, then what you have to do is pursue your interest in art and literature and, and poetry and, and science and, and, and telescopes and, and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> um, but I, I, I guess I want to dig a little deeper on this in, in, the, in terms of to what extent is awe an everyday emotion versus is it something that's big and rare? Like part of me thinks that like, okay, awe is like the world cup in that it is powerful and important precisely because it doesn't happen very often. But a large part of your argument is that, well, there's actually ways that we can access it on a much more mundane quotidian sort of basis. Can you, can you bring that out a little bit, please? Yeah. Thank you, Cody. I mean, that was one of the, you know, 
I mean, we've gathered all this evidence over 10, 15 years that goes into the book of the physiology and the cognition and so forth. And then we bumped into this surprise, and this is why I love doing science, which is we did these daily diary studies where people just report, like, did I feel awe today? Uh, China, Japan, Barcelona, et cetera. And, you know, we started tallying up the data, and people were feeling awe, and they wrote narratives, and we could check whether they were really feeling it two to three times a week. And that really surprised me. I mean, I was, I hewed to your thesis of like, it's rare, it's just a couple times in life. Man, it was happening a lot. Uh, and then I think a lot of the experimental evidence that we've subsequently gathered in other labs around the world says, this is an emotion we can access pretty easily. So yeah, it's actually easy to produce in the lab. You know, it's hard to produce other emotions like fear or anger. Uh, man, you can get people to feel awe pretty quickly. Um, and, and what that tells us, Cody, is that, and, and there are certain people who really have written about this, like Descartes and Rebecca Solnit and others, which is awe is, is a basic emotion. Uh, it's a basic state of consciousness. It is not this highfalutin, rarefied, you know, you have to have a certain kind of education in symphony or, you know, or, you know, smelling fragrances. This is like, this is just how we can perceive the world. And, and I believe that. I think it is almost everywhere if we just stop and, and, and open our eyes and, and take a breath and think about, you know, the deep meaning of things around us. So this is perhaps slightly different than the way you characterize it. Not wholly unsympathetic, but one way <laughs> to to conceptualize awe is as the emotion associated with the recognition of being part of a larger system. I think that's the core. Yeah. Yeah. And so that that to me really is the connection with meaning because when I start to think about yeah. what what is meaning? It is placing an individual item, whether that's a word or a person or whatever it sort of is, is what we're considering at the moment in the scope of the larger context. And once you go outside of that context, the meaning sort of the bottom falls out of it. And so meaning is highly contextual and it's about understanding the role that an individual plays in a, in a larger scheme. And so in many ways... Awe is just the effective, uh, effective with an A, is an emotional component of that more cognitive, interpretive, contextual recognition. All right. You know, thank you for getting to the thesis of the book. Like, that took me two years to get to, you know. I started to write uh, the chapters, you know, in about music and, and visual art and spirituality and moral beauty and was like writing and gathering these stories and interviewing people and putting them into the, the book and, you know, talking about the different studies. And at the end, I was like, what's it all about? Like, what is awe doing, you know? And, and that was the big epiphany is that awe is taking, you know, your sense of self or a, a percept that you have and locating it within some system that you very aptly said is highly contextual, Right. So, you know, if you are 
up in the Sierras, your experience of awe is going to be in relation to the patterns of nature up in the Sierras, the granite and the pine and so forth. Different than if you're out in the desert. Um, if you are at a country and Western show and, you know, Garth Brooks brings you awe, you're going to locate yourself in that system and feel, but it's going to have a different feel to it than if you're, you know, you're listening to Drake or what have you. So it is critically, and I think, I think this is one of the great achievements of human cognition, which you study, which is, wow, I can locate things in these complex systems, right? Including myself, including my moral systems and my belief about God and, and my hope for the future. I locate them in these systems. When that happens, you feel awe. Uh, and, and that's a, a pretty apt summary that you hit, at, hit on of what took me two years to write. So <laughs> thank you. So that's the scope of, of awe at kind of the highest, most abstract level. I want to go down and, and take the opposite approach and get as concrete and personal as, as possible. So you mentioned the experience sampling studies, which you ask people, you know, they get a little notification on their mobile phone throughout the course of a couple of weeks and, and, and that, that sort of thing. And I want to kind of flip that and ask what it would be like if we did an experience sampling study of you personally, Docker, the author and scientist, what, like, what is your personal experience of awe over the course of, of, of a couple weeks? Thank you for asking that. Um, well, you know, Cody, um, I do all this research on awe 10, 15 years. The book is really personal. You know, I had to write about a very complicated experience of my brother passing away. Uh, so I was sort of fueled by grief to write about awe. I interviewed all these people. And you might think, you know, well, the awe scientist no longer feels awe. It, he's depleted. And, and it's the opposite, which is if you pinged me at random times during the day uh, for two weeks, you would find almost every day I walk to work and I find awe. And it's often every day awe, like, Man, look at the the shadows of leaves on the so the pavement, or listen to the bird call, or check out the kids rough and tumble playing in the preschool I walk by, or there's the park that I took my daughters to when they're four and two, and I'm lost in the reveries of time. Um, you know, sunsets, sunrises, redwood trees, the sound of water. Um, one of the things that writing awe really alerted me to was collective effervescence, just how we're all kind of interconnected a lot of the time and we don't realize it. That brings me awe. And then, you know, through the book, I have very intentionally, um, you know, started to cultivate awe with like, I'm going to listen to music that makes me tear up. I am going to check out some visual images that do that. So it, you know, I would say I'm up to 6.2 times a week in terms of all and then you know yoga and meditation you know meditation and all the things that people do in you know berkeley california and elsewhere i mean people are doing yoga everywhere but so it's you know seeing my berkeley students um teaching uh seeing a student who was homeless and now they're unhoused and now is a berkeley student i get teary-eyed a lot from from studying all and so that, that would be the profile that you would find. That reminds me of a couple interviews I did recently. 
And one of them is completely tangential, neither here nor there. The other one is, is more relevant. So I'll start with the tangential one. Uh, I talked to, to Robin Dunbar last week. Oh, nice. famous for the idea of, you know, okay, well, you've got this core social circle of 150 people, Dunbar's number. And one of the things I asked him was like, okay, well, so how many friends did you have? And he's like, you know what? I have no idea. I've never, I've never come close to counting it all. Uh, so I, I, I feel like you, uh, as the awe professor, you know, it can go either one of two ways. It's like, well, yeah, you know, I mean, it's this interesting thing that, you know, fuck it, I don't really have it in my own life. But so you don't, you don't have that same Robin Dunbar effect of, of never having uh, turned the microscope around on your, on your own self, and, and that, that's nice. Uh, but the other thing has to do with um, again another interview that I was really found myself at odds with with Paul Bloom about uh, a kind of claim about meaning. And it had to do with intrinsic versus uh, extrinsic uh, meaning. And so the thing that he was claiming was that, look, there's a set of things that are fundamentally most likely to bring you meaning. And they're like, you know, the classic stuff, having kids, working on a job you think is important, like that sort of stuff. And at the end of the day, that's really what is meaningful. And I really, the more I think about it, come to believe that there is no such thing as intrinsic meaning. Meaning can be constructed from anything. You can look at anything and find a way to conceive of it as meaningful. And I was reminded of that in, you know, kind of this juxtaposition between when you describe some of the the other things more canonical meaning that oh you're standing at the top of a mountain oh well okay here's the grand canyon okay well here's a you know like the biggest concert you could imagine yeah i think we all kind of understand that there's a culturally prescribed or, or, or at least you know sort of a culture and available something readily available in the cultural imagination that's awe-inducing about those things but then when you describe your own experience of it's like well i looked at some some leaves and then I felt awe. And that's the kind of thing that makes it seem like, okay, well, this is something that you can connect with on any level. And uh, there's a couple points to be made here. One is that I think that's really powerful, is that we underestimate the scope of things that we can apply awe to. And second, I like it, but it also brings up this concern, particularly when you're asking people about awe. To what extent are they reporting the legitimate feeling of awe versus something that is aligned with our sort of culturally inculcated or stereotyped understandings of, of things that should inspire awe? Yeah, I, I mean, let's take the, you know, we we are, let's take the the methodological question first. Like, how do we know this is awe? That's a hard problem in the field of emotion. You know, how do we know the experience is really happening? Um, you can, they can report it. So we gather self-report data, uh, and is it, is it systematic in its meaning, you know, but, you know, Edmund Burke, the Irish philosopher was so influential. He's like, very often words don't correspond to our feelings. And I think that's very true of awe. We can look at physiology. We can look at vocalization. We have very consistently in our work, like in these everyday awe diary studies, you know, they write narratives and we have outside observers say, does that kind of feel like a, an experience of awe? And we, we cull a lot. A lot of them don't make our cut, right? So, so that's one way. Hard problem. Uh, but I feel like we're getting close. Um, the, have we underestimated the scope of awe? And, and I, one of the striking things that happened in writing this book, and I hope readers feel this, is like, like you pointed out earlier, Cody, there are systems of meaning everywhere. 
right? You and I are engaged in a conversation that is the product of our evolution and technological evolution and the evolution of language and mutual understanding. And that's millions of years old, right? That's a system that we are part of right now. Um, And I was really struck um, that, you know, from people's stories uh, that we gathered in 26 countries that, man, people can see awe everywhere, right? It is uh, the act of generosity that just happens below our awareness and you see it in the streets and suddenly you're crying, you're tearing up. You're like, man, that was really kind. Or, you know, going to a, uh, seeing a children's art show when you're walking through a park, you know, you're like, oh my God, look at this art, you know, this visual stuff. Uh, and to me, the big epiphany that brought this into focus is talking to Frank Soloway, who's a Darwin scholar. And we were talking about awe and I asked him about Darwin's awe and, you know, and awe runs throughout Darwin's writings. And, and he said, you know, Dacker, like the last passage of, of Origin of Species is, is where our Darwin has a moment of awe looking at a tangled bank by a river and he sees evolution, right? The processes of evolution. And it was just this muddy bank, you know, and, and there it was the deep structure of life. So I, one of my hopes in writing this book, you know, Cody, is exactly what you said. You already got my central thesis right, <laughs> right away. But it's like, there are systems of meaning everywhere, you know, um, and just, just contemplate them, study up on them a little. I didn't know much about music. I don't, I still don't, but I talked to musicians for the book. I studied the literature on it and suddenly music is like, wow, it's 80,000 years old. It, it has this structure to it, et cetera. So there are, we have way underestimated the scope of awe and our culture has taken it away from certain individuals like teenagers, right? Which is a time of fertile awe and, and, you know, they're really under too much duress right now. So, yes. In reading your book, one of the things that I found myself thinking about, which I don't normally think about, is really tried to get specific about the instances in my own life where I feel awe, legitimately awe. And again, with that skeptical lens of like, well, is this really awe or is this, uh, and there's a a couple things that I don't know, I just want to go into and, and sort of share my own experience with. And and perhaps you can, you can draw some connections with, with some of the scientific evidence, but this is something I really thought a lot about in, in reading your work. And I, and I found it Really, there was there was a lot there that I appreciated, but one of the ones that, that came to mind, and, and you mentioned music, is a musical artist named Donny Hathaway, and he's this soul singer and, and piano player from the 1970s, and he's not super well known to the general public, but among musicians, he's this legendary figure, died way too young, and basically just everything he touched turned to Gold. You'd recognize some of his most famous songs, like uh, "A Song for You" and "This Christmas" and, and that sort of stuff. But and like, if you ask guys like Stevie Wonder, like, "Hey, who do you really look at?" and be like, "Okay, like that person, holy, oh my god, uh, it's Donny Hathaway." So anyway, uh, there's this feeling of, of really awe I associate with his work, uh, and the way that I've thought about it previously is that whenever I'm talking about with music, Donny often comes up. Um, whenever I'm talking about people, t- talking about music with people and the way i've phrased it previously is that 
he's not necessarily my favorite artist in that in any given moments it's not necessarily the one that i want to listen to in fact it's a it's a fairly specific context it's very you know like a, this very specific emotional context in which I, I want to connect with it um but when i do connect with it if it feels like this immersion in the deepest uh the deepest human levels of of, of just what our experience is and so the way that i phrase it is that he's the artist who's closest to my soul and in the context of this conversation that really feels like what i'm connecting to in that music is that sense of awe and i try to i don't do it every day because i don't i I don't i don't want the effect to wear off i want that every once in a while when i when i when i need that connection when i'm craving that or when i'm in a a place that i feel open enough to receive it i go to that and i know that that is going to be a reliable experience on on that front with, with with awe yeah thank you for that observation you know um, do we really know what an experience of awe is? We can use the different measures and, and then we validate them. Um, your, your personal observation, I think, presents, first of all, the, the core structure to awe and its magic and power, which is you as this complicated you know, being with its, your history and genetics and life experiences and you connect to things out in the world that just bring you in touch with your soul. And I, I really like your use of the word soul. It kept popping up in writing awe. Walt Whitman loves using the word soul, Descartes and others. And what it meant is like, you're, what's primary and good about your relationship to the world that really drives you? And, you know, the process that you describe, Cody, I think is one of the great mysteries in awe science across these wonders of life, which is how in the world do we feel our soul listening to music or looking at a painting or hearing a particular contemplative teacher or seeing a a particular act of moral beauty? You know, for some people, Trump just stirred moral beauty to them. He was fighting for their cause. For other people, people were repulsed, right? It's so contextual and idiosyncratic, but there is a law-like structure there. And you got it, which is like, we move around looking to relate to the environment meaningfully and then th- we perceive systems and it, it makes us realize, like, this is me, you know. When I, I grew up uh, for the part of my life out in the country in the poor rural area of the Sierras with my brother and it was like the music, you know, in high school, the music was like ACDC and Ted Nugent, you know, and all this headbanging, you know, stuff, <laughs> And I went to college at UC Santa Barbara and I was walking, you know, and I heard Brian Eno's ambient music and it like stopped me in my tracks. Like what? And it, awe, like it's to this day. And it was what you're describing. Like there's something about the, what he's capturing in the meaning of his sounds. It hit me in my soul. Like it's a little sad. My life's a little sad. Uh, it has a reflective quality to it. I tend to be a reflective person. It's a little bit slow. It's repetitious, you know, so repetitive. So it it's the great mystery of how when we move through the wonders of life, where we find our soul and awe points us to it, you know, and that's not bad as an emotion. I love that. Yeah, that's a great, great example. And thank you for using the word soul. You know, one of the interesting things about awe is... You know, there are all these traditions in which scholars have talked about it or written about it and 
reported upon it. And, and it gets us to these words that scientists like you and me are really hesitant to use, but I think we need to use them, you know, the sacred, the sublime, and the soul, you know, and people really, when I, I've taught awe to thousands of people, and when I say, tell me a first experience of awe in your life or your family or music, and you can tell, like, they are telling you what is their soul, and that's a conversation we need to have. Hey, Cody here. I'm going to keep this short and sweet, but this interlude goes on for another one minute and 30 seconds if you just want to skip through it. If you have not already, please consider subscribing to my Substack newsletter at themeaninglab.com. If you like this episode, I promise you will like the rest of my work, and the Substack newsletter is the best way to keep up to date with all of that. I try to improve just a little bit every week on the quality of these podcast episodes, and each weekly post features the most interesting idea that I could find, which gives a cognitive science perspective on the pursuit of meaning in work, life, and relationships. Of course, if you buy a premium subscription, that's a huge help to me, and I really appreciate it, like a lot. But even just subscribing does a lot to support me in my work. The number of free subscriptions is the single most important number I track to see how my platform is growing which in turn helps me get better guests and more opportunities in the future. More people on there also means I get more feedback and I can see which ideas are landing and which ones aren't. So yeah, please check it out. I put out new podcast episodes every Tuesday, new posts every Friday. If you subscribe to the Substack newsletter, you'll get all of those right to your email inbox. Again, you can find that feed at themeaninglab.com. Thank you for listening. And now back to the show. Another instance that I found myself thinking about in the course of reading your book is, you know, so there's, again, this kind of like canonical awe-inspiring experience where, you know, you're looking over the Grand Canyon and it's like, wow, wow, wow. Um, and, you know, so when I was thinking about awe in the context of my own life, I've never been to the Grand Canyon uh, even though I've lived on the West Coast for a lot of my life, really a lot of the incredible natural beauty of California and even Washington State, I admittedly have not spent very much time with. But the Cody. <laughs> but one of the most incredible natural wonders that I have seen is Victoria Falls in, in Africa. And, you know, I took a helicopter ride around it. Whoa. And it was, it was, I mean, it was, it was truly, you know, an incredible experience. And for people who don't know it, there's, so the local name for it is the smoke that thunders. And that really does get to both the visual and auditory experience of it. You really hear Victoria Falls. When you're on the ground, you, you hear it before you, you see it. And it's this gash in the earth. And when you look at it from above, you know, it's fed by the Zambezi River that just sort of goes off into the infinite distance, that sort of stuff. And so it really is this canonical version of, of something that should be awe-inspiring. But to be honest, I had a really hard time connecting that to a feeling of awe. It's very cool. And when I say it, it sounds like, oh, well, you're like, poof, yeah, that's, yeah. that's it. But if I'm being honest with myself, I'm not sure that awe was exactly what I was feeling. Rather, when I sort of took a deeper look, what really felt like awe was a couple times I've been to the top of the State Tower in Bangkok, which is one of the tallest buildings in the city. 
and you get this, you know, observation deck where you can sort of look out. And to me, there's something about that city, which like, there's something about looking out across it and you really get this sense of the secret unknowability of, of other people's lives is I guess the way that I would think about it. And it makes me think that in every little, any little, if I see a house with, and there's a window in the top left, there's someone's life in there that's fundamentally secret and unknowable to me. And that, when I think about that, that is a true feeling of, of awe for me. And if I'm being honest, that's the one that I find awe-inspiring. Yeah, you know, I mean, one of, one of the real uh, delights in writing this book and doing the science of awe is that there are these eight wonders, right? And they're big domains, music, visual art, moral beauty, et cetera, nature. There are many kinds of nature, and, and everybody's different, you know, and awe as in Hinduism, is this amazing process of connecting your individuality uh, uh, to something universal, right? Uh, the, the mystery, in your case, of thinking about other people's minds. That is, it is awe-inspiring. It wouldn't surprise me. You went into cognitive science, you know? <laughs> and, and, yeah. and in fact, I uh, cite this uh, haiku poem in the book, uh, that it, that reports on like there's my neighbor over there. I wonder what he's thinking. Wow, right? And and it is. How do we think about other people's minds? So what's wonderful about awe as a pathway to the meaningful life, which we've talked about, is it's this complicated menu, you know. And you find your your pathways and the the specifics that speak to you. Uh, it may be. It may be country and Western music. It may be taking care of, you know, a woman I met who was just fascinated by large predatory animals, you know, and that was her life's work. It may be soothing veterans like Stacey Bear, who's a guy I interviewed him. Uh, so, so there are many, many pathways. They're all about mystery and vastness uh, and as is life. So, you know, uh, I, I love your example a lot. And, I, and again, I tease you a little, Cody. It's not random that you would be interested in cognitive science and the deep structures of people's minds, you know, so. It, yeah, I feel like that, that really is a resonant point that there is this connection between what we find awe in and in the ideal case, what we end up doing with our, with our lives and what, what it occurs to us to pursue. Uh, and I think that definitely is part of this triangulation that we're doing of, of, of individual experience and awe as an emotional uh, component and meaning as a, as a kind of more cognitive components. Um, definitely the individual differences in there and having the general principle be that there is no general principle necessarily. It's just the specific, what are you finding awe in? And, and that also goes to the, the point of not necessarily there being intrinsic, uh, things that are intrinsically awful, so to speak. But uh, there's a set of things that are, are, you know, sort of in the sociological imagination of, 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 our, of our cultural communities, things that are sort of on the menu of, of awe, but it's up to you to find the specific things that really inspire awe in your own life. And they're always changing historically. You know, music is a classic example in visual art and religion. You know, religions are always evolving and, and our conceptions of the divine are evolving and 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 really activate awe in particular cultural contexts. Um, but awe does point to this structure of like, like we've been returning to of like, 
who am I, what's this core structure of values and principles, and how is it finding connectivity in, in these broader systems out there that um, points us in the right direction? I want to draw out a, a connection in, in the body of, of your work. And you'll have to forgive me, but I, I went through the Dacker archives for this one. And so it turns out back, back in the day, your PhD thesis from, from Stanford was, was titled Misperceptions of the Other Side's Views, a Source of Conflict and Conflict Resolution. And your supervisor was the, the famous psychologist Lee Ross. And, uh, you know, though I, I can't claim to have read that, that thesis in, in full, it does strike me how much it sounds like a thesis that I could see coming out in 2022. And indeed, is very similar to the kind of thesis that I kind of hoped to write myself at the beginning of graduate school. But so anyway, the, the, the connection here is, is, you know, fast forward to the present. And in 2021, you published a paper co-authored with Daniel Stancato about how awe reduces ideological polarization. So can you maybe start off by saying a little bit about how you came to be interested in that subject and then start to trace how your thinking on it changed into what it looks like today? Yeah, you know, um, what a terrific question. What a terrible title for a dissertation, but that's no, neither that's, there. That, no, that's a great, <laughs> I, I, I love that. I, I, I yeah. read that and I was like, oh, great. Oh my gosh, I love this. You know, I, uh, you know, you're, you're absolutely right to bring this into focus. You know, I grew up um, in uh, a pretty political family. My mom was an activist, late 60s. Um, you know, ideological conflict was just everywhere. Um, you know, civil rights, war, anti-war protests um, and the like. And she, you know, and, and there was this sense uh, and, but I'm also somebody who really likes social harmony. Um, and it just is in my DNA and, you know, I love cooperation. And so, and I was like, man, how much of, of all of this ideological foment is real, you know, and how much of it is constructed, uh, strategically and epistemologically by how we, you know, you know, naive realism, how we understand we're biased. Um, and Lee, who my miss every day, Lee Ross, you know, that was what we talked about when we walked around uh, the campus and just, you know, like, how do we get that? Like, it just seems like there's this, you know, we are these human beings. There are these core structures that we can agree upon, take care of vulnerable individuals, allow people some rights and freedoms, et cetera. And we miss that. And so the dissertation got at that of, you know, how much of conflict is real and, and imagined. And, and then, you know, as I got to uh, awe, one of the things about awe is it, and this is amazing to me, Cody, and I still, you know, I'd love your thoughts on this, which is that any trigger of awe, be it like looking at nature, looking at a big tree, hearing a pattern of music, uh, etc. Taking psychedelics that alters the serotonin receptors. One of the the core things that happens, and we've documented this, is you have this deep belief that you are part of common humanity, like we're all together. Um, you know, Peter Singer's circle of care is potentiated or activated, um, and that's striking to me. That you know, looking at a night sky or hearing an amazing piece of music, suddenly you're like, hey, 
we're all brothers and sisters, et cetera, whatever language you use. And so that got us to this Stancato study of like, wow, if awe has that structure to it, it should be something that reduces polarization. And it did. Of course, you could think of counterexamples when your awe is hostile to me. You know? um, but I think that's one of the lessons here of awe is, is it does... Um, it does allow us to, it was William James's brilliance of like, there's a pluralism to awe. Everybody does it differently, but there's also a shared substance to this that unites us. And if we can get that right, we'll do a little bit better in, in the polarization struggles. So polarization under this theory and the way that paper investigates it is a function of certainty. And maybe certainty about our beliefs, but if not certainty about our beliefs, then a kind of certainty about our own centrality in the world. And so that's the work that I kind of see Ah doing in that particular depolarization intervention uh, is that it increases, you know, what you and, and philosophers more generally call epistemological humility. And that's a thing that I really find myself thinking a lot about more and you know, in, in the context, one of the contexts I'm thinking about it now, and if we had another hour, I think we could we could <laughs> we could really go deep on this. But it's I, I'm thinking a lot about the role that quantification plays in our life, and one one of the things that it does it makes us feel this sense of certainty that if we have hard numbers on something, and increasingly we do have hard numbers on whatever it is that we we want to measure and, and get better at and, and understand, it makes us feel that we have comprehended it, and it really obscures the extent to which that we have. And I see this, this link between, you know, in this domain polarization and in our increasing ability to have data and, and quantify the world around us. And in order to make an argument against, well, okay, so here's the drawback to quantification and, and, and the implications of that, you first have to make this argument about, well, here is epistemological humility and sort of starting from a place of recognizing that for the most part, we don't actually understand how the world works, but we as humans like to create the illusion that we do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've done work. Jenny Steller, awe does make you more humble for very, very good benefits. You know, just like you're more open to things, more curious. But, you know, in writing about awe, um, it was humbling. And I wrote it in this very pressurized period of my life of grief. Um, and, and it was interesting, Cody, because, um, you know, I, I tend to be more measurement focused, et cetera. And there are just certain things that like, I just didn't feel numbers would, or even brain patterns or physiology or genetic shifts or whatever, would ever get to, you know, how can you really, how could numbers really, or quantification get us to mystical experience? Oh yeah. Myself is dissolving six. I'm part of the universe five. You know, I feel animated. On a scale by a of nothingness world. to self, what uh, <laughs> are you zero or a ten? Yeah, and it's like, come on, you know. Uh, music has similar, you know, intractable qualities to it, and so I just gather a lot of stories, you know. And I almost, you know, I have stories for every one of the eight wonders. I interviewed prisoners and musicians and activists and indigenous scholars just to ask them about and and ministers, like you know, tell me about awe. And, and the stories, um, to me, and that's what William James really privileged in Varieties of Religious Experience, is like, 
numbers get you some, they get you too close to it, or maybe, you know, you're in the realm. And stories are another angle on it that, that really uh, sort of allow for the richness of awe to be seen and felt. Um, so I hear you. It was humbling for me to know that spirituality is part of awe. And I couldn't, you know, how, how do you measure it? Where is it? What is it? So let's go, let's get stories in the spirit of humility. And, and it, was, it was a really, it was some of the most challenging and uh, invigorating parts of writing the book. Dacher, you've been very generous with your time here. Um, and I've got a couple questions, just two, two final ones before we, before we wrap up. And so the first one is, I'm kind of curious to know what sort of society-wide awe-based interventions you would like to see. Like if you could have limitless resources and money and access to the U.S. civilian population, how would you get to engage? How would you get them to engage in in, in more awe-based experiences? Yeah, you know, it's already happening, and I think one of the things I'm really excited about with this book, you know, is people are like, I've been working on awe, but I didn't realize it, right? Uh, so I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, one is in schools. Uh, and so at the Greater Good Science Center, in our education program, we are building awe curricula for teachers, tens of thousands of teachers who can teach in a slightly different way that allows kids to embrace mystery, to ask questions, to wander, right? I th- and, and there's work, uh, Sandra Turner at National Geographic on oceans, there's a lot of interest in awe in education. Forgive me for for interrupting, but you know we talked about <laughs> we talked about awe and kind of you know this, this this tenuous link between what you do with your life and awe. Yeah. I'm kind of imagining awe as the new grit, where you know like it whatever whatever you know ten years ago, like we all like okay, like let's get grit into the classroom. If that's the number one thing kids need, let's do that. And I and I'd be much more sympathetic to. Uh, awe-based classroom uh, interventions. I would too. Uh, and, and I and I kind of, kind of uh, like I have that vision for the world now, and I'm kind of loving that. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, you know, and and I'm thrilled about this prospect of, and it doesn't take much, right? It's just a way of being with your students, where you're asking questions instead of sort of jamming facts down their throats, etc. And I think it's got a lot of promise. Um, you know, another um, interesting way to change society is in healthcare and hospitals, which take awe out of it. Uh, and so we're working, for example, uh, there's a lot of work at Kaiser Permanente, very huge, large healthcare deliverer, about bringing awe into the conversation around end of life. Um, end of life produces awe. Families become awestruck, like I was when my brother passed away. We are freaked out. We're wonderstruck. Make it an intentional part of that conversation. That could change um, all of our conversation here around awe is what people should be doing as people pass away, right, is to reflect on life and so forth. Um, I'm very excited about the greening movement, you know, in architecture. And, you know, California is moving towards every citizen should be 10 minutes away from a park, by public transportation, and that has a lot of awe around it, right? Uh, and and at, in its design and its intention. So I think there's uh, a lot of opportunity. And what I love about awe 
is it's it's personal, <clears throat> it's easy, it's around us. You don't have to burn fossil fuels to really feel it on a daily basis. Uh, and it has this magic that you and I have been talking about, Cody, of like honoring you and your individuality and culture by connecting to things that are larger than you. Um, and so I'm, I'm hopeful that this can be part of how we respond to climate crises and, you know, using energy differently and taking care of people who are suffering as examples. So we'll see. Final question. What are three books that have most influenced the way you think? All right. I will say, uh, expression of emotion in man and animals, uh, by Darwin uh, I think Murakami, I know what, why the cage bird sings. Uh, no, no, um, the Wind Up Bird Chronicles. I know why the cage bird sings is Tony Morris. Or Maya Angelou. Maya Angelou or Tony Morris. Yeah. Uh, the Wind Up Bird Chronicles, I think it is, just like blew me off the map. Uh, Brothers Karamazov, Dostoevsky was big. The Road was up there. The Road blew, you know, I read it when I was a dad, and I know I'm now number four. Uh, I read it when I was a young dad and you captured it, Cody, it's like, this is about horror and struggle, but love, you know, horror, struggle, love. And, um, uh, the, um, you know, the invention of nature by Andrea Wolf is really worth people reading. Cause it's about, that one just came out. It was a couple of years ago. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to Darwin, I think that counts as just yeah. came out. <laughs> the, the age of wonder. Sorry, I'm going on Richard Holmes. Uh, uh, William James, Principles of Psychology. I would love to talk know. about romanticism with you. And again, yeah, if we had yeah. another hour, I like, so that's, you know, that's a period of, of time that I really did not have any appreciate, uh, appreciation it's for. Huge. And it wasn't until I started reading Andrea Wolf that... Oh, my God. Uh, I was like, oh. And then it turns out there's all, I mean, of course, there's all this great intellectual work on it. Like Isaiah Berlin has an yeah. awesome book about uh, romanticism and that sort of stuff. And... It, we talk so much that. about, you know, I don't know, enlightenment and, and these yeah. very sort of cognitive interpretations of yeah. uh, our intellectual history. And it's like, well, William yeah. James proposed that, uh, you know, uh, the emotion works like this. And like, OK, that's great. I, I love those. You love those. But there's something about that period of I'm going to go out there in the world. I'm going to appreciate shit. I'm going to engage in shit. And, and draw it and sing about yeah. it. And, you know, and if no, I have a no. thought, it's going to be based on because I, like, took this ship and I, like, climbed this mountain. And then this is the thought that I had. And, you know. It's amazing. Yeah, there's there's a lot there that I think that we fell between. I agree. I, I like that a lot. I agree. You know, our, our Jean-Jacques Rousseau, you know, the critique of inequality. So, you know, no, it's. Uh, I'm glad you're bringing, bringing it to the attention of our listeners. It's a, uh, a very underappreciated period more broadly, you know, so glad you, you're tracking it. Docker, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. It's been an amazing conversation, Cody, and I, I, hope, there, I hope for more. Thank you. That was my conversation with Dacker Keltner. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy this show, please consider giving it a five-star rating on iTunes or Spotify. As always, you can find the entire feed of my work on my Substack newsletter at themeaninglab.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll be back next week with another episode of The Meaning Lab Podcast. Mm-hmm.